Well, so what's on your mind this morning? Why, you are, Matt. We're hanging on every word you're going to (laughs) say. But I know this, that there are a lot of things going on inside people's heads during the sermon. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to his dear friends, and the last number of weeks we've been talking about him addressing things in their lives, their behavior. And now he comes to chapter 15, he goes to a deeper level to their belief. If you think about it, whatever you process in your mind, conclusions you come to, and what you believe ultimately is how you'll behave. It's how you'll talk. It's how you'll walk in your life. Now, if I were to ask you what's on your mind, you may say, that's none of your business. That's a private matter. But all of those private matters eventually show up in the life. And that's why I love how Paul will address the deepest level, the why. Why do we do what we do? Why do we say what we say? Why do we live the way we live? It comes down to our belief. Proverbs 4 and verse 23 says, as a person thinks, so they are. And that is true for all of us. They're struggling with some basic beliefs. And of course, the the theme of the entire chapter 15 is about the resurrection. We could look at this in a doctrinal sense or theological sense or a creed sense of we believe in the resurrection of Christ. But where Paul is going with this is not so much believing that that happened. That's not his primary point. It's that you understand how the resurrection of Christ impacts you. We get into the next few part of the chapter, the next few verses of this part of the chapter, we're going to see some detail of what that looks like. They're struggling with the effect of the resurrection of Christ into their personal lives. Remember how he described this? I'm speaking to you a matter of, he uses the word protos, first importance. It is... It is of first importance. In other words, when we're talking about many things, and we can can disagree, and we kind of get to those levels of discussion. Some things you can live without. Other things you can't. And the, the doctrine or the teaching or the subject of this resurrection in your life is indispensable to Christianity. In other words, when you, it's like the, what do they call that when you have all the blocks that you pull out? And it's like, it's like, what is it? Okay, it's, it's when you pull that out and the whole thing crumbles. You take this out, you do not have Christianity. You do not have Christianity. Now, you could talk about mode of baptism. Do you baptize with immersion or sprinkling or pouring? Um, it's important, I think. I think everything's important, but it is not indispensable. Mode of that is not indispensable to Christianity or how we practice the Lord's Supper. Do we have it every week or do we have it once a month? But there is no teaching in all of Scripture that has more weight of significance to Christianity than the death, 
burial, resurrection of Christ, which we've called the good news or the gospel. So earlier I read from verse 12 to 20, but I'd like to focus on verse 12 and what Paul says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You can imagine him writing this, speaking to an audience, and he, he is questioning them, some of you. In other words, some of you, not all of you. Uh, it would sound, it seemed to me, be a, a fraction of the people, but there are some that are saying there is no resurrection, there is no bodily resurrection. How can this be? So I think it's good to, to explore the cause of that. And I can't be definitive on every cause of why people would say, you know what, I don't believe that I'll, my body is going to be resurrected. I don't, I don't believe in the resurrection. And so I think there are several reasons. The first would be that there are some of you, and I'm speaking church in Corinth, but then we apply it here. Some of you say this because you have never come to know Christ as your Savior. A lot of times we just assume everybody that comes to church is a Christian. And that's not true. There are many people that go to church every Sunday and the truth is spoken and Sunday school classes, Bible studies, and people that have gone to church all their lives who do not have a genuine, authentic faith. Now, I'm not trying to make salvation and eternal life more difficult, or you've got some secret thing that you've got to know to really become into the inner circle. In fact, the gospel is so simple. You, you cannot make anything more simple than Jesus Christ offering the free gift of eternal life and simply receiving it by faith. You can't make it more simple. However, I do believe that in most churches there are some. That's never taken place. They grew up in church. There's nothing they say they don't believe they acknowledge it with their nodding of their head. Um, they know all the language, but their hearts have never been changed. And that, that's, to me, a sad thing. But I would say this, that very simply, a person, child, and, and God makes it so simple that the, the simplest of people can believe upon Jesus for everlasting life. And as simple as it says in Romans, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So in other words, when you call on the Lord, you are acknowledging it's not by good works, it's not by performance, it's not by going to church, it's not by jumping through all these hoops or keeping a list of rules and regulations. It is by recognizing that you are a sinner and capable of saving yourself, and there is nothing you can do except cry out to him in belief. 
And your faith doesn't have to be that strong. You know, I love the phrase in the Bible, because I, I say this all the time, too, when I said, when I pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. <laughs> Have you ever felt that way? Because my faith isn't that strong, but my salvation and eternal life is, is not held by my strong faith. It's, it's his strong hand. It's his strong hand. It's like you're holding on to him, but he's, he's got you with the eternal grip. So let's not just take that for granted. And I say that as, as a pastor, as a shepherd, please don't take this for granted. And if there's confusion or doubt or whatever, let's talk about this. On the other hand, I see people that say, well, I don't think when I trusted Christ that I prayed hard enough or I believed well enough. You know, and, and you're missing the point. It's just simple faith. It's simple faith. But I think that people have doubt about what the truth says because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you until you put your faith and trust in Christ. And he helps you to understand these things. So let's not forget that. And my, my greatest desire, I'll tell you this, for my, my, my grandkids, um, my greatest desire in all of life is that they come to know Jesus as their Savior. And it's not, it's not just that they go to heaven, but that they experience the fullness of a relationship with him. And this, this is our desire for you as uh, we minister to you daily. So some have really never known Christ. I think that will always be true, that there will be some. In fact, James says this in his letter, the devils believe. They also believe and tremble. What does that mean? The devils believe and tremble. Well, they believe with an intellectual mental assent, not transferring their trust of crying out, recognizing sin. And so intellectual, uh, which I think a lot of it is today, um, is, is not genuine salvation. So secondly, your faith is weak. Those of you who do know Christ, it's like, kind of like, I asked Jesus into my heart, I'm going to heaven. <laughs> and then, okay, I'm just going to go do life now. And you've never, you've never really grown. So you have an adult body, but you have a baby personality. You've never really had your faith strengthened and developed into a confident boldness. You have a weak faith. And I think that when our faith is weak, we are so susceptible to all of the attacks of Satan. It just puts us in a, in a spin. Now, once you become a Christian, there is nothing that Satan can do to keep you from going to heaven. Don't ever forget that. Once you have eternal life, you always have eternal life. Nothing you do or anyone else does or nothing Satan does can take that away from you. But he can make you miserable. <laughs> he can make your life miserable. And the way you combat that is having your faith strengthened. Now, you remember I gave last week three ways that our faith is strengthened. One, the words, scripture. Two, the witnesses 
the company you keep that affirm the words to be true, and then finally the works that you actually see in your own life and in the lives of others, which are genuine experience. So some of you, not really believers. You're kind of playing the part. Some of you have a very weak faith, and you're vulnerable to say things like this. There is no resurrection. And then the last one is, you are fearful. You are fearful. Which could play into some of the weak faith, which it does. Why would a person say, there is no resurrection? Well, you have to understand that during the time, that time in Corinth, there was a lot of teaching, philosophy, and I would call intellectual pride. You know, you get around a lot of smart people, you want to try to act smart. <laughs> you don't want to act like an idiot. People that don't believe in a God, who don't believe that God has spoken, must come to some conclusions about creation, about meaning of life, right? They have to. And you don't want to look foolish. I think fear comes in many forms. When we fear man on the horizontal level, we're really not fearing God. When you fear God, you're not going to fear man. It's like what Paul was saying about going into the promised land. They see all the giants But above that, the two, the two spies that went in saw a mighty, powerful God. If you don't see him, you're going to run. I believe this, that so many Christians today live in paralyzing fear. Because their view is horizontal, what's going to happen? What's going to happen in the world? <laughs> What's going to happen in the election? What's going to happen with COVID? What's going to... We live in fear. And it really robs us of our joy. You know, one of the great characteristics of a true authentic believer is that their life is filled with joy. <laughs> when your life is full of fear, you cannot have joy. So what happens when I'm afraid of being embarrassed in front of the intellectuals? What, what if I'm afraid of what's going to happen tomorrow or happen in Ukraine or happen with a disease or sickness or happen at my job or happen with my bank account or happen, uh, happening with the stock market? What do I do? I try to control it. I try, I try to... I tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna, I'm gonna control this situation. And you know what that does to you? That produces more fear, because you realize you can't control those things. Money, politics, health, dying of diseases, things that might happen. You cannot control. So the more you try to control your circumstances. The more fear you have and the less you're looking to God. When you look to him, he says things like, and the Bible's full of statements like this, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
And the more of that scripture you put into your mind, the more peace and joy that you will have. So when I am in fear, paralyzed by fear, you know what it really is at the root? It's sin. It's sin. You say, wow, Pastor, you're kind of hitting this pretty hard today. Listen, folks, I've been hitting myself hard all week, so you're going to get some of this. Because this is me. This is me. When I fear the unknown, financial collapse, health, any of these things, I am sinning against God in unbelief. In other words, I'm saying, I don't believe your promises. And it's really not a matter of, okay, I'm going to have a stronger faith. Lord, help me, to, help me to have a stronger faith. No. You know what faith is? Faith is taking God at his word. Very simply stated, faith is taking God at his word. And you do that by acting on it. Okay, <laughs> I am going to, I'm fearful right now. I'm full of anxiety and stress in my life. And uh, yet, here's what the word says, and I am going to act on this rather than acting on the fear of man. So, I could spend a lot of time on this because this is where I struggle. This is where I struggle. Start looking this way. Yeah, and no doubt, I think, was where a lot of us do. So, reasons we say there is no resurrection. We're not believers. Our faith is weak. We fear man more than we fear God. So, what happens when we are not believing? What happens when we are not believing in the resurrection in particular? And he's going to give seven consequences of saying there is no resurrection. Now, I know that makes you nervous. You probably saw on the sheet, he's got seven points today. Oh, brother, we're going to be out of time for lunch. I'm going to go through these quickly. But I think when you say something simple, you don't realize the effect of that. So we anchor ourselves in the truth. First of all, in verse 13, and then it's repeated also in verse 16, but it says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So if you say categorically, and it'd be easy to say, well, when you die, you know, you just kind of go in the ground and that's it, and everybody's nodding their heads, well, I guess that's, you know, how do we really know? And Well, if you say that, <laughs> then you're also saying that if there is no resurrection, we find resurrections all through the Old Testament. We find them in the New Testament by Jesus bringing people to, to life. But all of those people died again. <laughs> the uniqueness about his was he conquered death completely. So if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So the central tenet of the faith that we have is the resurrection of Christ. He died for our sins, he was buried. He rose again the third day. If you go to Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, secularism, uh, major religions of the world, I went through all of this 
couple days ago, and I, I thought I can't include all this in this message, all the, all the numbers of people. But all of the leaders of all of these, of, of Islam, of Hinduism, of course, the, uh, um, Buddhism, and secularism, of course, is just man is his own God. All of these leaders have died. All leaders of religions have died. And there is no claim of bodily resurrection. A resurrected Savior is one of the many uniquenesses about the Christian life. And I hope you, you see this. What is, what is unique about Christianity as opposed to all of these other religions? Well, we have a resurrected Savior who lives. It's probably the foremost. We also would say that, that our faith is by grace through faith. You've heard me say that many times, by grace through faith. Not just your salvation, but it's the way you live, by grace through faith. God does all the work, we cooperate in faith. Eternal life is a gift. It's a free gift. Most people can't get over that. you got to do something. you got to earn it in some way. No, it's a free gift. Love sums up the law. So you take all the Old Testament... You sum it up, love the Lord with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other religion that sums it up that way. And then finally, we too are promised a resurrected body. A resurrected body. So when you think about afterlife, they're living in the time of the Epicureans and the Stoics and Plato, who was a forerunner of dualism, we can digress into a lot of philosophies of that day. But basically their philosophies have been based upon not believing in God, as we believe, or that he has spoken authoritatively. And so most people believe in a body-spirit, that a person is body-spirit, but during this time, the popular teaching in Corinth was that once the body dies, then the spirit no longer exists. Others would say, a minority would say, once the body dies, the disembodied spirit will live on somewhere. But what, what Paul is saying is that this body dies, goes in the ground, I'm immediately with the Lord, in his presence, and there's, there are parts that we don't, we've not seen, so we're just reading the scriptures, and then it says, he will come again, and our bodies, you say, well, but I was cremated. He knows where every part is, okay? I don't, I don't get panicked about that kind of stuff. You know, people say, well, you know what happened to them? They just, they were vaporized, you know what? That body is going to be resurrected completely new. You can say, how will anybody recognize me? <laughs> you're not that ugly. Um, you're, going to, you're going to have a perfect body. And this is what the rest of, when we get past verse 20, this talks about it. This is, it's so exciting. Not only a perfect body in a perfect place, in a perfect world. So, the reason why Paul is writing this, as I said earlier, is to encourage you about your bodily resurrection. You know, most of us, we look in the mirror and we'd like to change a few things. 
right? And some people do. <laughs> God will, you just leave that up to God. You're going to mess it up if you try to do too much right now. This promise of eternal life helps you keep perspective. Because when we talked about this, politics, this last couple of years has been nuts. It's been crazy. You look at what's going on with COVID and all the people fighting over this, the, the, the stock market and crashing and all of the things that would cause us to worry about. Paul is saying you need as a believer to see up and beyond that to eternal life. Because none of this stuff ultimately is going to matter. Now, <laughs> the Lord knows we struggle with it. The Lord knows we would struggle with it. I know the Lord will provide all my needs, but I, it would be nice to have a million dollars in the bank. <laughs> Duh. Sometimes we have, I have these conversations going on inside my own head. <laughs> you know, if I had $10 million, it used to be a million, now it's 10 because, you know, working off the interest. And if I had $10 million, you start to think with, if God owns everything and he's my father, and he said he'll open his hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing, what would having $10 million in my bank account do to my life? Well, I probably wouldn't pray like I'm praying, for one. And I probably wouldn't have the dependence upon him like I do. Now, if someone wants to write a check, I'll, I'll still take it, because <laughs> I'm human. But you understand what I'm saying. Many of these fears, job security, finance, you know, you could guarantee that I'd have good health until whatever age. Um, these are all temporal things. We need to look at the eternal. So secondly, in verse 14, we find that there is no resurrection from the dead. He says, our preaching is in vain. It is empty and it is useless. Now I thought, how many preachers, teachers, are speaking this Sunday morning around the world? A lot. A lot of churches around the world have a lot of people preaching the Bible. And what he's saying is if we do not preach a resurrected Christ, all of the preaching is useless. You know, it's funny how I've heard preachers before, I did this as a young person, going to a church, and everything the guy said I agreed with, I agreed with, I agreed with. It wasn't so much what he said as what he didn't say. <laughs> And so what we do is we call, we call this today a popular Christianity. The world wants a popular, easy Christianity. Some call it the moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, in other words, we have good morals, therapeutic. I just want to help you get through life, and we believe in God. It's like God is like the, the one who winds up the clock and lets it run. not a resurrected Savior. The centerpiece of our preaching, and you find this if you go through the book of Acts in the early church. Remember last week I told you how, how it had radically changed those disciples' lives. I mean, they, 
they went from fear, remember, fear, complete fear, to boldness. And what was the reason? They saw him. They saw him. Fear to boldness. The centerpiece of our preaching and teaching is the person and work of Christ. And we preach who he is and what he's done. Who is Jesus? He is God. He is man. You, and you see this not just in John chapter 1. You see this from Genesis to Revelation. You get into the very beginning of creation, you see Jesus is present. You go all the way to Revelation, you see him victorious. Jesus is God and he is man. He's fully God, fully man. And it's the only way he could be and do what was necessary to do. So based upon who he is and who he is, God man, here's what he did. He was he came in incarnation. In other words, God became man, born of a virgin, miraculous, perfect life, miraculous, fulfilled all prophecy, miraculous, taught us everything we need to know, died on a cross for our sins. He was a substitutionary atonement. His blood satisfied, his spilling of his blood satisfied the holy demands of an almighty righteous God in atoning for our sins. Can't do that with a good life. Can only be done by the shedding of blood. I refer back to Leviticus as I did last week. He rose again. He appeared over 40 days, over 500 people, at least over 500 people. He ascended into heaven where he is now. He's given us his Holy Spirit so he's present with us. He is preparing a place for you. <laughs> I love this. I love it when he says to, to the question, how do we know? He said, I am going. Don't let your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, dwelling places. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. You. He's not thinking of crowds. He's thinking of you. Don't let your heart be troubled. <laughs> he is the means and the end. John 10.10. 10. Number three, if there is no resurrection from the dead, this is verse 14, your faith in Christ is vain, empty, meaningless. So in other words, if, if you don't believe in a resurrection, then your entire, listen folks, your entire system of belief is useless. Everyone has a system of belief. A set of structure, a way they think. So what you are believing is not true, it's not real, it's wrong. Verse 15, we find a fourth consequence. If there is no resurrection of the dead, we've been misrepresenting God. <laughs> what does that say to pastors who don't preach a resurrected body? False teachers. Leading people astray. I think of, you know, I think of this often in the New Testament, how it says that pastors 
will stand and give an account. That puts a fear of God into me. Pastors will stand and give an account. Who? Your kids, your friends, innocent, trusting people. Number five, verse 17, if there is no resurrection from the dead, you are still in your sins. That's a scary thought. If Jesus did not rise up from the dead, you are still in your sins. That's what you believe. An atonement without a resurrection, in other words, a sacrificial death without a resurrection is incomplete. You have deadness. Death has won. The consequence of sin is death, and death has won. There is no resurrection. If he became sin for us, is still dead, we are still dead in our sins. And we cannot, I think I wrote down these things, I've tried to go through most of these. We, we cannot keep from continuing to sin. We cannot keep from bearing the guilt and shame of our sin. And we cannot keep from dying as a result of our sins. I know most of you have heard of Shakespeare, probably not watched Macbeth. I watched it several times when I was in college and can't remember a thing about it. <laughs> but I t- so I went to recall this, the scene in where Lady Macbeth is responsible for this murderous plot, and she's sleepwalking, and in the play she spends 15 minutes wringing her hands like this. What will these, ha- will these hands ever be clean? It's the guilt of what she'd done. And she said... She could still smell the blood, and she says, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And that's what sin does. Number six, verse 18, if there is no resurrection from the dead, those who have fallen asleep have perished. You know anybody who's died lately? A believer, just a few weeks ago, I was speaking to a woman on the phone, a dear friend of one of our church members here. I was having a conversation. I said, you know, as a believer, the last breath you take on this earth, the next breath you take is in heaven. I'm not just trying to make someone feel good. I believe that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. So what hope do you have? And then finally, verse 19, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all, of all people, most to be pitied. Now I've heard people say, you know what, even if it's not true, even if this is not true, boy, just living the Christian life is worth it even if it's not true. Are you serious? Christian life, I think, is a harder life to live. It's not an easy life to living by faith, keeping your eyes up and forward and not horizontal. 
It'd be like saying to someone, listen, if you save this much of your paycheck every week for this many years, you say, and, and you say, you say I'm going to save 30% of everything I make. Put it in the bank, put it in the bank, put it in the bank. You get to the end of your life and you find out it's all gone. Was that worth it? No. No. Everything about our life here on earth is in context of what we look forward to. All kinds of trouble. You take the health, the politics, the finances, things going on in your life, things that you can't control, all of that, you've got to see it in light of eternity. Eternal perspective. So how do we respond? In conclusion, how do we respond to this message? I asked early on, what's going on in your mind? It will show up in your life. We respond with claiming what we know to be true. And we know it to be true because God says it is true. The witnesses have declared it to be true in their testimony. And we've seen the works of God. And we respond with verse 20. And verse 20 is how I end. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? The first fruits, in other words, he's the, the first harvest, the seeds that are first taken of those who have fallen asleep. So he is the first, not the first person to be res resurrected, but the first person to be resected, resurrected and never die. He is the first and we follow that. Now, does that, does that change the way you see life? I hope it does. But I'll tell you this, every week I have to fight to believe it. Now that, that's a pastor saying that to you. Every week I have to fight to believe it because the clouds roll in, I start looking here, it takes away my joy. And that's why Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest extent. Christ is risen. Easter's coming up. We say, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the confidence that you have not just declared this. You have proven it to be true in the lives of so many. And I pray that as I struggle, all of us struggle with doubts and fears and worries and concerns, the lack of a strong faith, and some maybe even have never come to the place where they have personally made you their Savior. Father, I pray that we would take these truths and act on them in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.